I have the privilege of introducing a guest uh, preacher this morning. Uh, his name is Warren Fetcher, and he's here with his wife Kim here in the front. And uh, uh, Warren uh, is the lead pastor of Southern Ridge Church of New Jersey uh, in Marlton. And uh, he also serves uh, as the regional leader of our denomination. So he's the leader of our Northeast region. Uh, so he's uh, really visiting us in that capacity to serve us, encourage us. And, uh, and uh, he also serves uh, at the national level on the executive committee of the Sovereign Grace Churches. So he's wearing many hats, uh, but he does it well and faithfully. And, and Warren and Kim are really, as a couple, uh, one of the godliest and most humble people I know. Um, and, and really look up to them. Uh, and I'm really eager for you guys to get to know them. As well and hear hear from them. So, uh, so please welcome with me Warren to come up and preach for us. All right, I'm I'm right away going to make Sean nervous. I'm moving the clock that's on the. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's great to be here with all of you. Um, my wife and I have looked forward to this time. Uh, we were in Manchester last weekend. Uh, so King's Cross Church with Jacob Young. Um, spent Saturday and Sunday with them and preached at that church. Went to Acadia this week for the first time for us up in Maine. I uh, did tons of hiking up there. Uh, climbing different mountains, Cadillac Mountains, different mountains, and, and seeing the coastline. And we went on a whale watching cruise, which we've done once. We, Enjoyed it, we won't do it again, um, but we did enjoy that. Uh, and then to be here uh, is just such a, a privilege to be with all of you. We were with the Woos last night, uh, along with uh, Matt and Cheryl, and Ray was there, and, and just had time with them. And, and so it's wonderful to be here with your church. And I want you to know that your church is prayed for regularly. Um, so in our church, uh, outside of uh, Philadelphia, or suburb of Philadelphia, um, in Malkin, New Jersey, we pray uh, for this church. Actually, my son, son-in-law and my daughter really seriously considered being part of this church plan. Uh, Sean came, spoke. Um, my son-in-law felt very moved in an unusual way because of respect for Sean, which I would share. And uh, they were they were wrestling. Um, now we were, to be honest, we were praying they wouldn't come. Uh, so we're grandparents, and so grandchildren means a lot to us. We have five children, uh, twelve grandchildren. Kim and I have been married forty years. Um, so, but I believe that this church is dear to our heart, and we pray for you on a regular basis. And you represent an answer to prayer. There was a vision in Sovereign Grace at one point. We're like, can we ever get a church in New England? And that started with Paul Buckley, uh, the first church planted into, or, yeah, Paul, the first church planted into New England, and now there's four churches in New England with more being planned. And that's a, a phenomenal answer to God, uh, that we would see churches, gospel lights, gospel outposts, uh, in places where we need the gospel preached. Um, so, so I want you to know your church is dear to us, and you are prayed for, maybe for most decisions you may never meet. But they do care, and we are connected that way. And also, my respect for Sean could be hard. My one regret here today is that I'm preaching and not listening to him preach. Um, he's a smart guy, um, and he's a very smart guy. So last time I'm asking questions, he's asking me questions. I'm saying, well, actually, I want to hear your perspective on this issue, because uh, you're probably going to have a more thought-out perspective than I'll have. Uh, so he's a smart guy. And I would say this about Sean. He's a man full of faith. Uh, and church planning does take faith. He's a man full of faith, and he's a very humble man. Um, for the way that God has gifted him, his humility is profound. And I know from the saints out back you that I've known uh, about him is his courage. And you want a pastor who has courage. Because pastors are called to love and tell the truth. And sometimes you can be liked, and we all want to be liked. Nobody walks around um, not wanting to be liked. But that can become a trap if it hinders you from telling the truth. Sean, as a pastor, loves you and loves his people enough to always be truthful with them and to, to ground that truth in the grace of God. So, Sean, thank you for having you serve up here, and thank you for how you are being a gospel outpost. We will be praying for your outreach barbecue picnic next Saturday. 
So that will be on our prayer list this week on Thursday. We will spend time as an eldership praying for your outreach that that gospel light will expand into this community. So, um, so thank you. So it's great to be with you this morning. I'm going to be speaking on the love of God, which is a massive topic. If you think about uh, the Apostle John, twice in John 4, he actually makes a statement in John 4, 8, and John 4, 16. Uh, he has this phrase, God is love. It's not the summary attribute of God, but it is an essential attribute. When we think about who God is, this is one of the ways he describes himself, that he is a, the God of love. He is a loving God to us. Paul writes in Ephesians 3 that it's a love that surpasses knowledge. So how do we talk about something that actually surpasses our ability to fully comprehend it? And, and uh, I believe I can say uh, at a young age, probably about five, I'm 60 now, so that's 55 years. Um, I don't think I understood uh, much of the gospel early, but I think I was genuinely saved, enough to understand I was a sinner, I needed a savior, and Jesus died for my sins. Um, but understanding the grace of God has been progressive. But understanding really who I was apart from God. Um, there really was a sinner. And, and really needed. And because I was a Christian early in my life, I went to Christian school, I didn't do what I considered were the immoral things. So in our chapels at school, the people who come and speak would all come in, and they'd have these, these testimonies that were so unlike anything I had. You know, drug use, immorality, crime. We had a guy who was part of uh, the Warlocks motorcycle gang, and, uh, and actually at the head of a chapter, somebody got shot at his wedding. And you're like, you're like I don't have a testimony. I don't do any of those things. You know, like, I think I lied once. And I think I, you know, uh, and what happened in that is I didn't have an understanding of what really drove my sin. Because I was very proud. I wanted my own glory. I wanted my own ease. Those things did function for me. But they didn't seem big. So because my sins didn't seem big, God's grace didn't seem big. And it's really in my 20s when God starts to really reveal the sins of my heart, the motivations of my heart. And that was a real struggle. Because um, then I really felt the condemnation. Am I even a Christian? Why do I not change? Why do I keep confessing the same sins? And it's really in my 20s that the grace of God got really introduced, the love of God got really introduced to me. And that love is just has grown in my understanding ever since. It still is an inexpressible love. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, open up there to Zephaniah chapter 3. It's probably not a typical place you go. So you got to go Old Testament. Um, and if you're looking for Zephaniah, just look at the index if you can't find it. Don't act like you know where it is. Um, it's, it's near the end of the Old Testament, so you hit that, you're going too far, just go back about 20 pages, and then come to Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 3, uh, Zephaniah is one of the minor prophets, and they're called the minor prophets, not because they're less significant, so don't understand, think of them that way, but they're just shorter. In fact, these books are very significant to us. Here's what the minor prophets typically do. They typically announce God's judgments, typically against God's people who typically rebelled against God. And that was true of Zephaniah. So here's what you'll see in the Minor Prophets. You will see the holiness and the justice of God. God's not to be trifled with. We just finished a series in Joel where God sent a massive locust plague to the people of Israel where they were starving and then he followed that up with a drought. And the first message in our series in Joel 1 was when God shouts. In other words, God will get your attention to call you to repentance. God acts. God is holy. God's a jealous God. He wants worship, our worship. He wants our fidelity and our loyalty. And the children of Israel regularly went up and down with that. And when they did, God would bring judgment. So here's what the minor prophecy, you think about it. Oh, the justice of God will be clear. The holiness of God will be clear. But I think really what we see in these books as well is that God's promise of restoration, that God 
loves to rescue his people who wander from him. So if you read the Minor Prophets, don't miss the big picture. The big picture is God's rescue and restoration in the midst of our sin. And that's what makes God's love, one of the things that makes God's love so astounding is who he loves. It's not just of God's love, theoretically, God loves you. And again, if you have honest appraisal, look in the mirror, unvarnished, not in your best moment, not in your public moment, but in your private moment, in your worst moments. And if you're a child of God, he still loves you, and his love does not wane. He loves people like us, people who are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. So the title of this morning's message is, Do You Hear Him Sing? Do you hear Him Sing? Here's the main point. God's love for His people is to be the controlling influence of our lives, the animating, motivating, all-encompassing effect in our lives. So, Zephaniah chapter 3, we're going to read this and then pray. I'm going to read verses 14 through 17. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Let's pray. But we have read your word, and I pray that you bless the reading of your word. The reading of your word alone is powerful. If we slow down and we pay attention, these are your very words. And Spirit of God, I pray that you would empower those words into our heart right now. Lord, please help me to serve people who you do love, whom you set your affection to and upon, and Lord, whom you have purchased with your own blood. Lord, for anyone here who does not know you, may they, may they see the God of love and what you've done to express love to them this morning, and may they respond to that great love. Lord, help me to preach your word accurately for the benefit of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure you've all experienced things that have taken your breath away. Um, one of the things I love to do is I love to hike. Uh, so I've hiked, told you up in Acadia, I've hiked out Washington dozens of times, probably. Um, I've done backpacking in the presidential range uh, in the White Mountains, uh, which can be very, uh, very challenging. I've also gone out west. I hike out west pretty much every summer. Uh, I'll go out in, in uh, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. Um, I'm going to Wyoming this summer, and then I'll hike in the mountains. I'll backpack four or five days out. I've seen grizzly bears out, which is, sounds very thrilling until you see them, and you go from it sounds exciting to actually, I can be terrified within minutes uh, of that. But I've seen beautiful things, true, glorious beauty. And so I've gone up uh, over mountaintops, over ridges, uh, passes, 10,000, 11,000 feet, and all of a sudden we'll be there, uh, just a turquoise blue lake. I mean, it's Caribbean blue. And it's just beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. And then it's surrounded by snow-capped mountains. And you just look at it and you go, wow, well, this is gorgeous. This is glorious. This is beautiful. This is majestic. And it takes your breath away. I was in Yosemite, a national park, and did some day hiking there and some backpacking there as well. And we went to a place called Path Point. And you can walk on Path Point. You can walk right out to the edge to a 3,000-foot cliff. Now, actually, I don't walk out to the edge. Because if you're walking out, you realize there's still nothing. I'm not seeing a slope. And you walk 
Not this far, probably back a little bit far. Next thing I'm on my knees, and next thing I'm crawling. And there's one thing when you do, when you crawl, and you look over, and it's 3,000 feet straight down. I got a rock once, it's through a rock, and the child was about nine before you heard it hit. And it's just, ah, it takes your breath away. Think about experiences that you might have had that taking your breath away. You're like, ah, wow, wow, that's amazing. Brothers and sisters, the love of God is meant to take our breath away. It's meant to have that same effect. God would love me that way. Me? It's meant to have an effect on us to take our breath away. This is what makes Zephaniah 3 an amazing text. It is an amazing text. And what makes it most amazing is the context. So it's not just the text. It's the context. When this is written by the prophet Zephaniah, at this point, all parts of society had turned from God or were indifferent to God. The priests were indifferent to God, had turned from God. The princes were indifferent from God or turned from God. The merchants were, had turned against God. The masses, the elite people and the normal people. Basically, the nation of Israel had turned away from God or had become indifferent to God. And by being indifferent to God is actually worse than turning from God. So wait, if you're turning from God, you're done against God, you recognize it's there, you're fighting. Indifference is you're irrelevant. Just treating someone like they're a non-person. So indifference to God is really a, a great evil, a great affront. I mean, the creator of the universe who made this magnificent universe, this complex universe, and then people just walk around indifferent to him. I listen to sports radio regularly, and people always say, well, yeah, I believe in God. Even in the analysis, if I believe in God, I'm like, you just said something profound, and you said it in such a trite way. It has no meaning to you. If there's a God, he's either of ultimate meaning or of no meaning. But there's not mid-ground here. And this nation that God had chosen, whom God had delivered out of Egypt, who God had done miraculous things to, who God had made his own people well, they were now rebelling against God or indifferent to God. And it's in the midst of their indifference and their disobedience and their rebellion that God gives the promises that we read in Zephaniah chapter 3. Now there's ways that this text is fulfilled in the Old Testament, but this is mostly a messianic text. It points to what Christ will do. And here's the news for us this morning, is God will always have the last word. In the midst of their disobedience, in the midst of their indifference, God still is going to have the last word. Here's what that's good news for us. It means our circumstances do not have the last word. It means other people in your life do not have the last word. And it means this, our sin does not always have the last word. God has the last word. So two points this morning, simple points. Number one, God loves to love his people. And number two, God's love is meant to control our lives. First point, God loves to love his people. Look at verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, strongly, a mighty one who will save. Now pay attention to the second half. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Notice what's true of God in this text. There's no reluctance. There's no duty in his love. There is delight in his love. Now, if you ask me how or why does God delight in us, I really don't think I can answer that question. Because he chose to. Not because we have potential. Not because we're morally good. It's a choice he made. It's a delight he has. And brothers and sisters, this is a consistent theme in Scripture. Listen to these following texts. We may have these for you. Psalm 149, verse 4. The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adores the humble with salvation. Isaiah 62, 
verse 5, the second half of verse 5. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. One of the great privileges I have as being a pastor, I've done countless weddings, it seems. And one of the things I love is when I'm in the front, I have a great seat. So I have the groom right next to me, and then and the audience, and then the bride comes. And I always like once when the doors close and all of a sudden they open and the bride appears, I watch the groom. I look at the bride for a moment and then I watch the groom. You know what I notice? A man captivated. A man in utter joy. And a man who's saying, Can you walk faster? <laughs> right? With the slow wedding walk. Grooms are like, Come on, move along. Let's play a faster tune. Run down that aisle. And, and that's how they think through that. And so there's this, there's this delight that God has in us. Like a bridegroom who rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. Micah 7, 18. Who is a God like you? Pardoning and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance. Listen, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights. He delights in steadfast love. Luke 15, I think you're in a series of Luke, and what a wonderful series that will be and is for you. Luke chapter 15, verse 7. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This is how God thinks about us. Theologian Matthew Henry said it this way. He's a theologian from the 1600s. The great God only loves his saints, but he loves to love them. Now I want to pause for a moment and ask you a question, because you would be asking this question as well. How can God sing over someone like me? How can God sing over someone like me? And if you're all like me at these times, you can look in the mirror and say, I'm a mess. And there's times I think about my life and say, man, you have, you're 60 years, 60 years old. Five children, 12 grandchildren, been married for almost 40 years. You really never missed church. You went to a Christian school for 11 years. Been a pastor now for 35 years almost. You should know that. How can you make the same mistake? How can you doubt? How can you drift? How many times do you need to be rescued? And I can just think, Lord, I'm a mess. That's not hyperbole. It's not, you know, sometimes we think, well, I was a mess before I was a Christian. And I think we know how to resolve that mess. Before I knew Christ, I was like this. But after I knew Christ, I'm supposed to be like this. Well, what happens in the gap? When we're not meeting up and, and uh, matching up to all of our expectations and all biblical expectations, it can be a mess. So I can make a mistake as a father. And if you do my kids here, they would they come up and say, yeah. Let me tell you, there were times he got angry. Sinfully angry. You know what we did is we apologized. We owned it. But anger, as a husband, 40 years has not been just, man, look at that. And it just started the glory, and it's going glory to glory. My wife's here. I can't say that. You know, I, I mean, she would have. How many times do I have to tell you my birthday's important to me? <laughs> really? You would think that pain alone would have had me learn that lesson. But it was like, because I didn't want birthdays being important. So, you know, hey, I'll get a present sometime the week of. And for some reason, her feelings were hurt. And then, well, how many times that happened? Yeah, probably for a decade. <laughs> Like, man, you are slow. Yeah, I'm being honest. It's not hyperbole. I'm a slow learner. And folks, sin is stupid, too. So I'm a mess. As a pastor, I've made mistakes. As a person, my first, and this is actually embarrassing, um, my first message, first Easter message when I was a pastor was in 1993. And I was preaching out of Galatians 6.14 where Paul talks about, you know, forgive thy goes except in Christ Jesus, you know, the cross and the crucified. So no other boats. During the message, 
There's times when people are laughing at the right times. I'm actually, you know, they're saying something and I'm, and they're laughing. And there's times I can tell that, you know, oh, there's a little bit of soberness. And in the middle of the message, where it's the message is boast only in Christ, I had this thought come to my mind. This is a good message. <laughs> now, that's a hard place to be as a pastor because that might think, hmm, this is a good message. What did I just do? I just boast about a message. That's probably most people aren't going to remember a week from now. And I'm boasting about it. It's my first teaching message. And I'm boasting this is a good message. Point of text, where you're only supposed to boast in Christ. And then you start wondering, is God going to kill me right now? Like, is this going to be, like, we're going to get church playing done in like a week? I mean, it's going to be, well, they started and they, they ended because the guy died while preaching. And while it's somewhat humorous, I do feel God's rescue in those moments. Because you know what? In that message, God was rescuing Because God did say, what did you just boast in? Where are you going to find the identity? And, and son, pastor, call man, I love you enough and I love those people enough. I don't want you to find your identity in your performance. I don't want you to find your identity in pastoral success. She went, if you do that, you'll end up using people. You won't be a servant. You'll be a master. And I love you enough, and I love them enough to rescue during the message to confront you, to challenge you in the message. And so I'm preaching and having a separate conversation, in a sense, with the Lord. And I got to repent because I'm boasting in the wrong thing right now. So when I say I'm a mess, it's not hyperbole. But what do I have? What's my hope? Well, my hope is found in this text as well. In, in the next verse, verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. So you know why I can tell you that story? God has taken away that, that judgment against me. God has done something for me. Folks, God is not like us. God loves messes. God loves messes. God disciplines even those that he loves. This is what it says in Proverbs chapter 3. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. Do you see what God puts together that we don't generally put together? Discipline and delight. Parentally, I don't typically put delight and discipline together. Discipline is my disfavor, right? And, and favor is when we're obeying. But actually, God delights in those he's also disciplined. Oh, God, you are so, so very different than who I am. You love messes. You love your people. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon, who's my historical hero. And uh, apart from biblical preachers, I think the greatest preacher of all time, uh, preached in England as a young man and then preached faithfully over decades. Charles Spurgeon said this, The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, imperfect though they may be. He sees them as they are to be, and so he rejoices over them, even when they cannot rejoice in themselves. If you're here today, you're like, if you knew my week, if you knew yesterday, if you're a parent, you could be saying, if you knew this morning, or next week. What happens next week? Don't give me your good week. What happens when you have a bad week? You have an indifferent week. You have a more rebellious week. He rejoices over that even when they cannot rejoice themselves. When your face is blurred with tears, your eyes red with weeping, and your heart heavy with sorrow for sin, the great Father is rejoicing over you. We are questioning, doubting, sorrowing, trembling, and all the while, he who sees it from either the end from the beginning knows what will come out of the present disquietude and therefore rejoices. Let us rise in faith to share the joy of God. And there seems to be in this text just one condition. And the condition is that we seek refuge and actually to go back, you know, 
Go back to verse 12. Just look up to verse 14. It says here in verse 12, But I will leave in your midst, and people humble and lowly, they will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. So what do they do? These are people who start to realize, Oh, I need God. I have been indifferent. And now what I'm doing, I'm not going to make it up. I'm not going to pay for it. I'm not going to try to reform myself. I'm going to look to God. I will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. And that's where they go to God. Those those that trust in God, oh, he rejoices over those who trust in himself. Question, have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Have you? Nothing more important. The most important question to, to ever resolve in your life. Right? Christ is either true, and all the things he said were about himself were true, or they're utterly false and not important. Religion is not good for just happy life, successful life, well-ordered life. Paul would tell you very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not the raised from death, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, it doesn't matter. But if it's true, it's eminently true. It claims us, it empowers us, it directs our lives. Do you know that God loves you this way, that he God is not tolerating you. And I think because we grew up in so much of a performance culture, I think performance, how we do it, is so hardwired in us. How are you doing? What's your job with you? What's your, you know, I, I played sports all growing up. You know, how are you performing? Did you work hard? It's, it's all my effort and then and the feedback to my effort. Work hard, put more time in, train more, whatever's involved. And there's so much of that performance and acceptance. And God says, you didn't have a make. So he looks at the performance of his son who lived a perfect life, who died a death in our place. He says, look to his performance. And if you trust him, if you seek refuge in him, oh, I sing over you, I rejoice over you, I exult over you, even in your worst moments. Because he doesn't care about those moments. He'll rescue us from those moments. But his love does not change in those moments. So that's the first one. God's love. God loves to love his people. Second point, God's love is meant to control our lives. When I say control, fuel, direct, encompass, animate, empower our lives. God's love is meant to control our lives. So how? How does this text inform us of God's love to control our lives, to influence our lives? So one, one, number one, be happy. Look at verse 14. Sing aloud, O Lord of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart. Be happy. Now, that's what he said. I heard Sean preach. Sean's always is not just about happiness, it's about holiness. It's about our joy, not certain flippant happiness. I'm trying to take you a text that says, sing, rejoice, exalt. But here's what I think that is. You can grieve and rejoice at the same time. My wife and I have experienced uh, in the last couple months, I would say, maybe the most greatest trial in our lives. Um, and so there's, it was almost a, a, a grief that couldn't be comforted. And as we're processing through that, there was this, this, this huge grief um, and yet, there was also a, still a, but I know God. And that can't change, and won't change. And I know God loves me. I know God's for me. And so you have this grief on one side, and yet a joy and still a happiness on the other. And that just came from truth. But I thought, you know Whatever assails me on this side, this side remains true. So grief, but rejoicing at the same time. And there's a reason for us to be happy. 
There's a reason for us to rejoice, to exalt with all our heart. And we find a reason in verse 15. So rejoice. Sing aloud, O Israel, unto our time. Shout, O Israel. There's joy. There's happiness. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Because the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has taken away all judgments. This is what Christ has done for us. This is the truth that stays with us. Regardless of what's going on out here, circumstances, people, what are they doing? What's happening? Health reports, disappointments in life, goals that were thwarted goals, dreams that did not happen. What happens? Why have this on the other side? He has taken away all judgments against men. I love the hymn of 4,000 times the same. What's one of the verses in that, one of the statements in that? His blood can make the fowls clean. His blood availed for me. Micah 7, 19, it talks about our sin being cast into the depths of the sea. And that idea of being cast into the depths of the sea means you never see it again. It's never brought back against you. So why are we happy? Because Christ died for our sins. That is categorical. If that's true, if you believe that, that's the most defining part of your life. Christ loved me so much. For God so loved the world, this is God, that created this immense, glorious, complex world by his voice. Effortlessly. Love me so much. I love the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Do you see the lack, in one sense, the lack of effort God had in creation? He just spoke it. Versus the effort he had in redemption. Redemption cost his son. Creation Spoken. Called into existence. Redemption? Oh, that's okay. Redemption said, I have to send my son to die for indifferent people, rebellious people. And I'm doing that because I love them. And my son's going to die on a cross. And not just the physical pain of all that, which we can talk about all the physical pain of dying on a cross and all that happened to him physically and body and all the nerve endings and all the things that he created that then were enraged in pain. But it was the spiritual. This man who knew no sin had our sin placed upon him. Our guilt placed upon him. Our worst moments placed upon him. Our moments when we didn't know Christ, placed upon him. And our failures after we know Christ, placed upon him. Your sins, past, present, future, placed upon him. And then you have the God of justice and holiness punish his own son. And abandon him in that moment. Oh, creation, one sense, easy. Redemption, costly. For him. But he loved us that way, so cause of that, oh, we can now be happy. Our sins have been resolved by Christ. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. So be happy. Secondly, be confident. Be confident God's with you. Look what else he says in verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. What else has he done? He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. And this is Lord here. This is the covenant-keeping, majestic God. L-O-R-D capitalized. This is covenant-keeping, majestic God who does all things, has all power, self-existent, unchanged God. He will save. He will be with you. 
for the trial we are in, I, because I'm going to be honest, I don't know how you make sense in this world, nor how you live in this world, if you don't have Christ. In other words, you're either not paying attention, or everything's breaking your way. But what happens when the reality of life hits? And hit they will. Live long enough, and you will suffer. Live long enough, expectations won't be met. Disappointment will happen. My son has Crohn's disease. He's in his 30s. He's had it since his teen years. He's had it actually at 10. It was diagnosed. He's lost about three feet of his intestines. It's just living in a cursed, fallen world. And yet there is a rejoicing in his heart. There is a trusting of God in his heart. There is that, if I wait till I feel good to do things, Lord, I'll never do anything. So I serve with the strength that God's given me. And he knows this. God's the covenant keeping God. God is with him in the midst of his troubles. And someday these troubles will all be resolved and go away. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Let me finish the series in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter 5, it talks about Satan being a roaring lion, a lion who's prowling to devour. And we not need fear him. We need to be aware of him, but not fear him. Resist him, and he flees. Why? Because God will clear out my enemies. The Lord God is with me. So we can be happy, joyful, we can be confident. Nothing will change the love of God towards us. And what's it say here in verse 17? He will quiet us by his love. Think about how a child, when they become quiet, what are they usually having? They're content and they're secure. And now it's safe. There's something that happens. They're quieted by the love of God. His unchanging, rejoicing, singing love. We are quieted by that love. Listen to this quote from Jerry Bridges. But a moment many books, working out there, is with the Lord to now, uh, now after following God for decades. Jerry Bridges said the following, Just as God's love to the Son cannot change, so His love to us cannot change. Because we are in with one He loves. God's love to us cannot fail anymore than His love to Christ can fail. May that love help your confidence so, be happy, be joyful. Secondly, be confident. And lastly, be zealous. Look at verse 16. When that day, shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, and let not your hands grow weak. Here's what the trying to tell you. The great king has rescued you. He has set his love upon you. So now serve him with all your might. Seek his kingdom first. One of the great joys of church planting. So you're, Sean, how long is the church been here? Three years? Yeah, so three years of church planting. We just celebrated our 25th anniversary. What a great thing to go plant a church, to be involved. What a great thing to watch God work. I mean, it's just thrilling. I pray today when you guys will plant other churches. Yeah, and you know, it's a, it's a joyful day and a hard day. Because two things happen at once. You're excited for, we're planning another church that's exhilarating, and then you're saying goodbye to some friends. And that's painful. It's like, I, I love you. And, and we're still friends, but we don't see each other the same way because you're going somewhere else to build and do something differently. And there's a cost in that. And we planted two churches in both. Tears, tears, and joy. Brothers and sisters, if God, if God loves you this way, serve Him with all your heart. One of the things I have felt through life is I have no regrets of serving Christ regardless of cost. You ask me to walk the morning and say, You're 60, talk to your life. I, I taught my Christian school for nine years. Uh, so that was, there was a lot of sacrifices involved in that, pastoral ministry for, for almost 30 years now. Um, so I've been in Christian ministry really 
from the moment I graduated college to today. It's been all Christian ministry. Say, well, what about the sacrifices? Were there sacrifices? Absolutely. Were there pressures? Absolutely. Are financial pressures fun? No. They're not. They're hard. Very hard. It was hard driving home to our apartment in Media, Pennsylvania was that when I was a Christian school teacher and and you know with people from the water that were walking by drunk and cursing and the guy next door who was being abusive to his wife and, and, and we're living in an apartment and you're just like, Lord, you said, you know, we'll give us one we can ask to imagine, we can ask a whole bunch more and imagine a whole bunch more than this. There were sacrifices. It was hard. We're not in the same place today. I'm grateful. But yes, did you regret sacrifices for God? And I'll tell you categorically and absolutely, I have no regret in serving Christ at any moment in my life. Regardless of cost. So where do you have regrets? You know where I have regrets? Serving myself. Oh, I have I can ask you about stuff. I can talk to you about mistakes, grievous mistakes, sins. But you know, serving God, not once. At different, I've had different trips to India, where I've done pastors conferences in India and and going there, and, and because of the places I was in, my life was never threatened. I don't act like I'm some courageous guy. I'm not. But, but driving in India itself can be life-threatening. Uh, if you've ever driven in India, it's very challenging. Um, and I did go to places where missionaries were uh, had been killed. They burned 200, 200 Christian homes. Almost every pastor I met uh, knew someone who had been killed for the faith, and certainly had knew someone who was beaten. And, um, and so when I wrote, I left, I wrote letters to my family and my church. There are hard letters to write when you're thinking, what if you don't come back? I'm writing to my daughters about not walking them down the aisle. Writing to my sons. Writing to my church. Writing to my wife. Weeping. So I'm writing these letters that I hope will never be sent. But in all those letters, it's like, it only ended this way. Follow Christ with all your heart. Serve Him with all your mind. You'll have no regret. There may be costs, but you will not have regret. What you're doing, you're starting. How do you serve? We, we've now been 25 years. We have some guys that have been community leaders, character leaders, smoker leaders for 20 years. I think, you know, what, what helps a person serve a small group of people for 20 years? Inspiration can help you for a year or two. We're inspired, we're, we're launching, we're starting, it's a startup company, you know, we're all in, and we're, yeah, 70 hours a week, and, you know, and what happens over time? What sustains service over time? We know it's a God that loves us like this. A God that claims us like this. A God that's been gracious to us like this. So serve him, you will have no regrets in doing this. Brothers and sisters, God loves to love us. He rejoices over you with loud singing. Let this be the controlling factor, the compass, the animating fact, a fact in your life that sets direction for you. More of a young audience. Probably ambitions. Nothing wrong with jobs and careers. Nothing wrong with saving. But what's really animating, what's really informing your priorities? What will drive your priorities at the end of the day? Pray for the children in this church and children will grow up and become youth groups someday. You want them, you want them to see Christ as the most valuable thing in the world. That's the life, that's what you're building right now. That's the example you will set. Thank you for your example. Thank you for what you are doing to establish a gospel presence in Cambridge. May that gospel presence in Cambridge grow to other neighborhoods in Cambridge and beyond. May the day we say, man, we got four churches in the other way. So, many more than that. Many more than that. God's love to us informs us. He loves you. He loves to love you. Please hear that. And I'm going to close with this quote from 
Charles Spurgeon. And this is what Charles Spurgeon says. Let us show to the people of the world, everybody that's watching you, wondering why would you give? I mean, my word. You're giving how much to a church? Why would you serve? Why on certain beautiful days, today's a hot one, why would you be in church on a Sunday morning? It's your day off. What else could you be doing? Let us show to the people of the world, those people that ask us those questions, who think of our religion to be slavery, becoming a Christian, very limiting, very legalistic, who start to have assumptions about our religion. Let us show to the people of the world who think our religion to be slavery, that it is to us a delight and a joy. Let our gladness proclaim let our gladness proclaim that we serve a good master. One who loves to love his people. Let's pray. God, I thank you for grace that was motivated by your love for well, not just for Israel, a nation you called that was really called them out of darkness. There was a time when Abraham didn't know you, didn't care, and you revealed yourself and called into your own, your own heart. And then, Lord, you made a nation. Not a nation to be just a nation, but a nation to be a light to the world. And God, you've done that through Jesus Christ now. Well, thank you that you love us. Lord, we want to be sanctified. We want to grow in holiness. We want to reflect who Jesus is on the earth. We want our lives to be upright and godly so that those who align us, Lord, have no standing against us. But Lord, it's all fueled by how you love us. Lord, your love is generous gracious, consistent, and unchanging. Lord, the thing that you delight in us tomorrow morning, we wake up and we say our sins are not counted against us if we have faith in Jesus Christ. And we've been humble enough to say, I need a Savior, and I have one in Jesus. But tomorrow morning we can wake up and say, oh, not that my sins are not counted against me, but God has made me his own. I am his child. I am a daughter or a son. And I belong to God. And he will never leave me nor forsake me. And he will rejoice over me with sin, with delight. Thank you that you are that kind of God and may we serve you as that kind of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.